We're in week number three of our series, Come and See. This is a new series that we have begun really just talking about personal evangelism and sharing the gospel, sharing your faith with other people. And if you did not know this, out at the VIP table, we have two business cards like this. One just says, you are invited. And on the back, it has information about our church, where and when we meet. This other card says, random act of love. And as well, has our times and location on the back of the card. And these are tools to help you share your faith or, or invite people to church. And so if you're out today and you're, you're eating lunch at a restaurant, you want to make sure to leave a really good tip and then invite somebody to church. If you only leave them a, a poor tip, please don't leave your card. We don't want our name attached to a bad tip. But if you want to leave a great tip, put your card there. And uh, that way that they have a good connection with Vertical Life Church. But then also, as you're throughout your week, if you feel God lay on your heart just to do an act of generosity for somebody, sometimes people feel led to buy the McDonald's meal for the person behind them, things of that nature. Leave one of these cards so people know that there was an intentional act by a believer in Christ to share their faith, that, that they want you to know that this was an act of love of God towards them to help just kind of not only cultivate uh, awareness of our church, but also just to help people encounter the heart of God. So if you haven't gotten any of those cards, pick a couple of them up on your way out and, and be intentional about passing those out this week. So this week, we're in week three. Again, in week one, if you, if you haven't been here with us, we talked about Jesus being the stairway to heaven, that, that everything that we do is, is focused and centered around Jesus. That salvation is because of his death and resurrection and faith in him. And he's the only way to heaven. Week number two, uh, which was last week, we talked about being fishers of men. Jesus, as he called his disciples, he, these were actual fishermen. They were out in the boat trying to catch fish. And when he was talking with them, he said, I will teach you not to fish for fish, but I will teach you to fish for people. That as a disciple of Christ, that is kind of... The, the description of a follower of Jesus is to be a fisher of men. We are, we are missional-minded. We are missionaries in our sphere of influence. And so we, we took time to really recognize that every one of us have been called by God to be a missionary. You don't have to move to a foreign field to become a missionary. You are a missionary right here where you are. And Jesus has tasked you, not, not just us corporately, but you personally with finishing the work that he started. And the work that he started was that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. You are to seek and to save the lost. You are a missionary, a light into this dark world. And so today we're going to zero in on the encounter part or the engagement part of sharing your faith. A lot of times we, we, we kind of have this nebulous idea of what it is to share our faith. So we're going to be a little practical today. But I want to kind of zero in on the engagement part. Like what maybe should go through your mind or a process you should go through when you're actually engaging somebody to share your faith. And as I've said all through this series, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a believer, even though we recognize we're to be fishers of men and to be missionaries, what we fear most about sharing our faith or telling someone about Jesus is that, actually telling someone about Jesus. 
That's the one thing, as we talk about uh, telling someone about Christ, what we fear the most is telling them about Jesus. If you think about people you work with, and you think about, oh man, you know, you just identified that person's not a believer. They need Christ. And then you start to think about telling them, all of a sudden you can start to get clammy and you, your hands start to sweat and you, you, you kind of feel nervous, like, oh no, what, what might they say? What might they do? And they may never talk to me again or, or they might report me as being a Christian to my boss. I don't, I don't know what the case is, but we start getting freaked out about doing the very thing we know God has called us to do. So what should be an exciting endeavor for every one of us usually leaves us timid, shy, and even silent. And for many of us, we hope that even though we want to tell people about Jesus, we hope that if we just live a good enough life, that maybe that, that one day someone somehow will just start asking us questions because they see a difference in us. And that has happened. That's happened to me before when I was working as a as a young teenager at a movie theater, my boss one day came up to me and said, hey, man, why are you so happy all the time? Why, why, are, you so, why are you always smiling? And it, for a split second, I just got to say, you know what, it's because I have a relationship with Christ. And I got to witness to him a little bit. And, and so it was an opportunity. So that does happen when people see the difference in you. But like we talked about last week, a religious or a, a godly life not just a religious life, but a godly life, an authentic life driven by faith is the best bait that you can use to catch a human fish, if we're talking about being a fisher of men. As, as that's why we endeavor here at Vertical Life Church to be a people who are driven by love and the love of God. If we are driven by love, not just love for God, but for the people that He loves, and, and we know that He loves everyone, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the whole world. He loves each and every person. So if our love for God will begin to spill out in our lives as we genuinely love others, we let his love flow through us, people will see Jesus. They will see Jesus in us. Jesus said that they will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another, for other people. So if God's love is flowing through us, people will know, hey, man, that person's been with Jesus, or that person knows Jesus. They will see Jesus even in spite of your imperfections. And anyone that sees Jesus will want to know Jesus. They'll want to get to know this God of ours. But for some people, just loving on people and doing good things is as far as they go. It's as far as you go. You, you try to live and love well, but you never get to the place where you have the conversation that provides an opportunity for life change to happen. You just, you, you punch in at work, you do everything you're supposed to, you don't swear, you don't curse, you don't tell dirty jokes, you don't look at the, the, the pictures that are being passed around, you just live a good life, but you never get to that point where you have a conversation. And you know, maybe it's because at some somewhat, we don't really know what to say. For we're thinking, well, I need to share my faith with this person. I need to tell that person about Jesus, but I don't know what to say. Maybe that is a hindrance, or maybe we're just too insecure to have the conversation. But at the end of the day, something that we need to understand in the core of our being that we need to believe is that no one gets to heaven 
by observing the holiness in someone else. No one gets to heaven by observing the holiness in someone else. Jesus said, be ye holy as I am holy. If you're going to get to heaven, you have to become holy yourself. And the only way to become holy as he is holy is through Jesus Christ, the stairway to heaven. This is the only way. John 14, 6, this is a verse we should memorize, something that is a very famous passage of Scripture, but the truth of it is so weighty. In John 14, 6, Jesus says this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Let's read that together. Let's read this. If the verses are on the screen, you can also turn to John 14, verse 6. But let's read it together. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, this might be confusing, but in the original language, the, the word no one or that phrase no one, you know what that means? No one. No one can come to the Father except through me. That means there are no exceptions Unlike popular belief in our culture, all roads do not lead to the same place. You don't get to heaven through Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad. You get to heaven through the one and only Son of God, which is Jesus Christ. There are zero exceptions. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the stairway to heaven. He is the Savior, the Messiah, the Holy One of God. There is none before Him. There is none beside Him. There is no one coming after Him. It is all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. He is the way. And it's not enough to know about Jesus Christ. You can study your whole life about George Washington. You can know every battle he fought in the revolution. You can know every struggle that he had. You can know whether or not he actually chopped down the cherry tree. You can read every personal letter. You can go to the place where he lived. You can know everything possible you could possibly know about George Washington. But if you do not have a personal relationship with George Washington, you do not know George Washington. You can know a lot about him, but if you do not know him, if you don't have experiences with him, you don't have fellowship with him, you don't have time with him, then you do not know George Washington. And the same is true about Jesus Christ. You can read the Bible like a history book. You can study what the world says about him. You can know about the places that he lived and where he went. But if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, you do not have a personal relationship with God. And all relationships are built on one thing. What is it? What are, what are all relationships built on? They're built on trust. They're built on trust. So if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, then you have to trust He is who He said He is. He's the Son of God. You have to trust in His death and His resurrection to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. You have to trust that his word is true. You have to trust and believe his message and allow that belief to change the course of your life. You see, if you say you believe something, 
but it has no effect on your life, do you actually believe it? If you say you believe something, but it makes no difference in your life, do you actually believe it? And I would say no. If you believe something, it's going to change the way you live. And it can only change the way you live because it changes the way you think. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul, to the church of Rome, he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you what? Think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So Paul is urging this church in this Roman letter, in Romans chapter 12, to live in such a way that brings glory to God, even from the way we treat and live within our bodies. That everything about us would be an act of worship to God. And then he says the way to do that, in verse 2, is to be transformed by the way you think. And the reason why the way you think affects your, your, your actions or your life is because if you change the mind, actions will follow. If you change the mind, your actions will follow. You can only fake change for so long until old habits resurface and you go back to the very way you were before. I have a little confession to make. Um, I'm 36 years old. I'll be 37 next March. And uh, for about 35 and a half years of my life, I've been a habitual nail biter. I don't know if there are any other nail biters in here. I know it's kind of gross. But uh, it, it just been something. I played guitar, so I never wanted to have long fingernails. And, and even as a kid, I bit my nails. And it just been something that I did. My wife tried to help me quit. And I even attempted a few times. But never, never failed to always go back to old habits, whether it be anxiety or nervousness or whatever. But I just would find myself biting my nails out of nowhere. And uh, so as I'm just going about my life, continuing the same old, same old, my youngest son, Asher, has also picked up my bad habit. But his nail biting is actually affecting his body. He's biting his nails so much to the point that his nail beds aren't growing to the end of his fingers the way they should because he's continually biting his nails. And so I'm thinking, well, how can I tell him not to bite his nails when I'm biting mine? You just can't do that. And I'm also thinking, if it's, if it's bad for his body, it must be bad for mine. And if my habits have caused a curse maybe to fall down on him, and he's reaping the, 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 um, the effects of what I've done and chosen to do in my life, then maybe the only way to help him stop is for me to break that in my life. And so I began to change the way I thought about this little habit, and I made a decision. We're going to break this curse. We're going to break this habit over our lives. And so I made the decision to stop biting my nails, and I think I can now say publicly, I am now in recovery for at least two and a half to three months. So, so pray for me. But, um, but, but it's true. You know, before I changed my mind and my thinking about it, I couldn't beat it. But now it's like the moment I feel my fingers feel funny, I go right to the nail clippers rather than put my hands in my mouth. And so the change of mind has changed the behavior and has resulted in a different way of life. If we want to be changed, truly changed, if we want to live differently than the world lives, the world who's enslaved by the enemy, 
who's controlled by the evil one. Scripture says Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're enslaved to the enemy. If we want to live differently and not be conformed to the behaviors and customs of this world, it first begins by trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That is the first step to breaking free from the world is trusting Jesus and then trusting what he says is true and what he is teaching us in his word is true. It, believe, it begins with trust and trusting Jesus. This is the same for every person in the world. If we want to truly change transformed lives or live transformed lives, be changed by our faith, then we must begin with that simple trust in who Jesus is. And that turning from living according to the world to living according to God's design or to the holiness or his will for your life is a word, a religious word we call repentance. And repentance simply just means a change, changing from one way of doing things to go another or choosing to stop and turning and going another direction. And repentance is part of the salvation process. If there's no change, then we cannot say that there was ever really true belief. If there's no repentance, there's no change in how we live, then we can't say that there was ever truly any trust. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Paul says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in what? Spiritual death. Worldly sorrow, feeling bad about the things you've done, feeling guilty, feeling condemned, feeling bad about the things that you're doing in your life that don't honor God, that the Bible calls sin, just feeling bad about it without a change does nothing but continue down the path of spiritual death. You see, when the truth is presented, there are really only one of two responses you can have. There's humility or there's pride. In humility, we implement and we embrace the truth, and with pride, we harden our hearts and we reject it and continue on in the same way. And Paul tells us that godly sorrow, godly sorrow that leads to salvation is the kind that contains repentance. It brings a change. But worldly sorrow lacks repentance and leads to judgment, spiritual death. You see, feeling bad is not the same as repentance. We feel bad about things all the time. I felt bad about biting my nails off and on throughout my life, but I never changed. Feeling bad is not the same as repentance. Repentance requires a decision that says, I will stop living this way and I will start living another way. And this is why religion in and of itself, that word religion is so toxic. Religion is toxic for a various number of reasons, but basically because it provides comfort for sin without the necessity of repentance. When we talk about religion across the world, there are many religions, there are many ways of living and belief that say if you just do enough good works to outweigh your bad works, then you'll be right with God. The problem is we are such sinful sinners, there's no way we could ever pay God back for everything that we've ever done. That's why we needed a sacrifice. We needed Jesus. That there's nothing we could ever do to pay God back. And the best that we would hope to accomplish is not even worth God's time. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. So even the best that we could accomplish isn't good enough for God. There's nothing we could do to pay God back. 
in religion, what religion does, it comes in and says, you don't need to change. You just need to work. You just need to pay God back. You need to let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. If you just make sure you attend every church service every Sunday and make sure you give your 10% and plus some and, and you're faithful to all the things that the Christians do and, and, and you're involved in all these different programs, then God will be pleased with you and you'll be okay. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that salvation doesn't come through work. It comes by the grace of God through salvation. It comes through God through placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so many people have opted for religion and not relationship. They've traded the true gospel, the true message for a counterfeit. And rather than repentance that leads to heaven, they've embraced a religion that's leading them to hell. And I believe it's because at some point along the way, the truth was withheld from them. The truth that pointed them to Jesus. Rather than speaking the truth in love, they were led to believe a lie for fear of offense. And what resulted was a false perception of God and his righteousness, which gave them a false perception of the gospel message. And so there are many who sit in church pews all over the world, all over everywhere, that are on their way to hell. And many who sit on couches in their homes all over the world who are on their way to hell simply because they've not been engaged with the truth that Jesus is the way. And the truth that sets people free. And they've been left to figure it out on their own. And maybe we just believe that they'll catch on one day or that maybe they'll just morph into salvation as if you could do it through osmosis or something. I'm not quite sure. But there are many who have yet to hear the truth of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Repent of your sins and turn to God and you'll be saved. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, Paul writes to the church of Rome. He asks this question. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a great, that's a great statement that knows that salvation is not withheld from anyone. Anyone who calls on Jesus will be saved. But then he asks in verse 14, how can they call on him to save unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless what? Someone tells them. How can they hear unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. How can those who are on their way to hell, who are lost in darkness, who are far from God, how can they believe in such a way to, to, to transform their lives? How can they believe unless they hear that gospel message? Unless they hear the message about Jesus. And how can they hear unless someone actually tells them? How can they? And how can someone tell them unless they've been sent, unless they go to tell them? This is what Paul is trying to communicate to this church. You see, the point of this message today in this series is that there has to come to a point, a pivotal point, where someone makes a choice to tell someone about the gospel, and that person is prov provided a pivotal uh, choice that comes with, do I believe or do I not? Do I choose Jesus or do I not? 
It's a pivotal point where someone comes to a place where they make that choice. Do I believe and trust in Jesus or do I continue in my own way? And that choice comes when those who already believe no longer hem and haw or beat around the bush, but they get to the point where they say, Jesus is the only way, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't tell them, how can they ever believe? And if they never believe, how can they ever live a transformed life? If you don't share your story and what you've seen and heard, what God's done in your life, and tell them how they can experience the same hope that you have, how can they ever be given the opportunity to choose Jesus or not? That's what Paul is saying. It takes an intentional engagement where you clearly present Jesus as the pathway to salvation for a life to be transformed. And Paul says, in Romans 12, how can believer or someone believe unless they're told? And how can someone go and tell unless they be sent? That's a good question. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says something to his disciples. And we understand that this is his word to every believer who calls on the name of Jesus. He says in verse 21, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. What? So I am sending you. Peace be with you. Not anxiety, not fear, not timidity, but peace. The peace of God be with you. Because as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You see, you don't need to be called as a missionary to go. You don't need to wait to be led to tell someone about Jesus or to be sent. Jesus has already commanded it. Go into all the world. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you you. I'm sending you to your family, to your friends, to your neighborhood, to your sphere of influence, to your community, to your place of work. I am sending you into the world. So how can they hear unless somebody is sent? The reality is we are all sent. We are all sent. Jesus is relying on us to then go and tell. And Jesus is our example. He, we learn from his example as we pattern our lives after Christ. And the Father sent him. He was sent. Therefore, by example, if we're following his example, we then too will go because we are sent by Jesus and sent to do one specific thing, tell people about him, about what he did for us, about who he is, about how to be saved and be forgiven, how to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to illustrate how we do this as we go into our spheres of influence, to the places we go to work or to our neighborhood gatherings, I want to read a story from John chapter 4 about the woman at the well to show us kind of the pattern that Jesus used when he shared the truth with others. And this is a powerful passage of scripture. In uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go to Samaria on the way. Now, historically, we pause right here for just a minute. We need to understand that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. There was severe racism and hatred for one another. 
And so Jewish people, even though it would have been a shorter distance to travel through Samaria to get to where they were going through trade caravans and, and, and things of that nature, they would literally walk for miles around the land of Samaria to go around to get to the northern part of Israel. Because you had to go through Samaria to go from the northern part to the southern part. And so they would walk for miles just to avoid Samaria. One, it was kind of dangerous for them because of the hostility. But two, they thought themselves so above the Samaritans that they wouldn't be caught dead being found associating with any of them. And, and so this is a significant thing that Jesus had to go through Samaria. It says he had to go. This means that he was compelled. Something was drawing him to that place. And we'll see that it was for an encounter with a Samaritan woman. Verse 5, it says, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. This is confirming what we know historically about this area. But just think about this for a minute. Jesus is in a land that he wasn't supposed to be caught dead in, but he had to go. And then he has this encounter with this woman, uh, this, this Samaritan woman. And we think about Jesus as a Jewish man is speaking publicly to a woman, which was taboo in that day. And not just to a woman, but to a Samaritan woman. This was so far out of the norm. But Jesus was treating her like a human being, like she mattered. And I just think about the song we sang not too long ago. And it has a word in there. It says that you are not ashamed to be seen with me. You're proud to be seen with me. Just think about all the things that could be said about you or all the reasons why you have to feel ashamed or guilty or condemned. And God the Father is proud to be seen with you. There's no stigma that the world could attach to you that would prevent God's love from overcoming that. That's amazing to see him fighting through all of these taboos and cultural normalcies to encounter this woman. And he was treating her like a human being, like she mattered. There are five things that we can see in this passage of Scripture. The first thing is that he engages her with the love of God. She is a human being. She is not an inconvenience. She is a soul that's in need of saving. She's not a person from this way of life or someone caught up in that type of lifestyle. And she says to Jesus, after she's taken aback, the fact that he actually talked to her, she says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. So we see by this example that he's demonstrating the love of God. And then he, when he gets caught up in a conversation, he does something pretty uh, clever, he asks her a thought-provoking statement, or he makes a thought-provoking statement, and that's number two. He says something to draw her into a conversation, to kind of lead her on the path that he's wanting to take her. And this is how we lead into gospel conversation. It's not through arguing or debating. It's not saying, you know, what do you believe about this? Well, now let me tell you all the ways that you're wrong. Here's what you need to believe. 
It's a, just a way to ask somebody questions, to hear their heart, to hear what's going on inside of them, to speak to their heart. And he demonstrated this love in the way he drew, was drawing her with this thought-provoking question. And this is a pattern that we want, need to take to heart. So he asks her this thought-provoking question, and she responds in verse 11. She says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this is well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And so as this conversation is unfolding, we can see that she's not thinking spiritually. She's thinking more literally. And she begins to doubt kind of this, this conversation that she's having and the validity of, of Jesus because of this claim that he was making. And I think most of us in that moment would kind of freeze right there. Or we'd kind of jump into an argument. Well, let me tell you how I could offer you better water and this, that, and the other. And we, we, we would stop listening and we would start arguing or start trying to prove our case. But Jesus does something completely different. He doesn't walk into and start correcting her theology and correcting you know, her misconception. Number three, he conveys the life change that happens to a person who believes. He begins to speak about life change. In verse 13, it says, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. This is why we say from week to week, your story matters. Because your story is evidence the world can never disprove about the reality of God and the power of His love in your life. This is where your story comes in. When you begin to ask these thought-provoking questions and people are looking at you puzzled and wondering, you know, what is this that, that you're getting at? Or, or what are you trying to say? When you begin to speak from the miracles you've experienced, from the way God has transformed your life, this not only creates interest, but it begins to draw people in to, to wonder, well, if God could do that for you, could he do the same thing for me? If God could do that in your life, or he was willing to do that in your life, could he do the same thing for me? It begins to open heart. It begins to instill curiosity and cause her to dig a little deeper, to become curious and even desire this experience for herself. Look at her response in verse 15. She says, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. So she's asking for it now. She's, she's intrigued. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. And though, though she's still more open, she's still kind of missing the point. She's thinking Jesus is offering her some magical water. Or if you saw the movie Water Boy, this is high-quality H2O. You know, the, this is, she thinks that, okay, there's, there's something physical that he's going to give me that's going to change her life. So Jesus does something else. He changes his approach. And rather than working from a logical or human reasoning side of faith, he begins to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit for a word of wisdom for this woman, for a word of encouragement. The fourth thing he does is he gives a revelation. He gives a revelation. And for many of us, this is not even in our wheelhouse. This is not even a concept that we think that in a moment as I'm sharing the gospel that the Holy Spirit could give me a word that would help connect God's heart to this person. But we see in Scripture all throughout that if we have the Holy Spirit and He gives gifts, if we're seeking the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, His power will be evidenced and manifest in our life. 
And there's no reason to think that God couldn't speak to me and speak through me on behalf of somebody else. If you open yourself to the Spirit and you're pursuing the Spirit, especially in fulfilling the mission of Christ, I believe God is going to do more miracles through you than you can possibly understand. In verse 4, or the fourth point is he gives revelation. He gives a word of knowledge. The Spirit speaks through Christ and tells the woman something that he would have never been able to know otherwise. In verse 16, Jesus says, go get your husband. Verse 17, she says, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the one you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So now she's no longer doubting that this guy being crazy. She's now seeing some validity to this man, that there's something going on. Speaking of him as a prophet recognizes that she understands that God is at work at this because this is an encounter I can't explain, but I know it's happening before my very eyes. This is beginning to do an incredible work in her heart. And this is why it's so vital to be filled with and cultivating a relationship with the Holy Spirit and learning to hear His voice. For Acts of kindness and human wisdom only go so far, but when a person encounters the power of God, it is undeniable. It is undeniable. And the Spirit will give you prophetic words. Recently, at, at our, our last time serving at My Brother's Keeper, it's the homeless shelter in Flint where we go once a month to, to serve food to the men. As always, after we're done serving the food, I normally go out and just try to minister to the guys, hoping to have a, a conversation that would lead to sharing the gospel and leading someone to Christ. And most of the time, it's just just encouraging the guys and getting to know them and hopefully, you know, pr- at least praying with them. And as I was walking around the room, I just it just felt dead. I just felt like there was no traction. No one was really making eye contact and really wanting to have a conversation. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, this week wouldn't be as profitable as others. But then I saw a guy reading a book, and, and I thought I saw something spiritual in there, like I said, Holy Spirit or prayer, something to that effect. And immediately in my mind, I was brought to Acts chapter 8, where Philip was walking along the road, and the, he heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading from Isaiah. And when he approached and spoke to the guy, he asked him if he understood what he was reading. And so I'm thinking, okay, this must be from God. So I'm going to walk over and ask the guy, do you know what you're reading? And so uh, I, I went over there and just say, hey, man, how's it going? He's like, it's going good. And I said, so what are you reading? And he's like, oh, just this book on prayer and the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, do you know what you're reading? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I do. And I was like, okay, well, then are you a believer in Jesus? You know, do you know him as Lord and Savior? And he said, yeah, I do. And I was like, okay. And so at first I thought, well, maybe, you know, he's just away from God because I was just kind of getting this vibe that he really didn't want anything to do with a spiritual conversation. But um, I tried to talk to him a little bit. We shot the breeze for a moment. And then, again, I just felt in my spirit, you know, I, this conversation's coming to an end. So I, I told him, I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to leave you without praying for you. So do you mind if I pray for you? He's like, yeah, go ahead. And so I laid hands on him, and I began to pray. And as I'm praying, I just felt just this urging in my spirit to pray for a couple of things. One was for issues in his family, that there was some strife going on in his family that was that led to his homelessness, the, the reason why he was in the homeless shelter. And then two was a dream that he had as a child that he never thought he was good enough or qualified to pursue. 
And, and so I began to just speak that. The Holy Spirit was bringing it to mind and just declaring that God was going to open a, a door for him to begin walking into that dream and pursuing the dream that he had, not even knowing what it was. And when I got done praying, the guy's disposition completely changed. And he kind of sat back in his chair and he's like, wow. It's like, man, I know I was hearing from God. And I'm like, really? What, why? What was going on? I was thinking maybe God gave him a revelation. I don't know. But uh, he's like, man, you hit on two things that, that just I've been dealing with. Is like I had this issue with my sister and, and all this stuff, and I know I need to forgive her, but I just hadn't wanted to, and it's been causing these problems in our relationship. And, and, then, and then, you know, that dream, it's like, man, that dream. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be a minister, but I never felt like I could do it. And it's like, and just the other day, somebody prophesied over me that I was going to be a minister. So I know that God was speaking through you when you prayed. And I, and I was just like taken back by that. And then our conversation completely changed. The, the connection that we had was completely different. And we were just, it was just encouraging to, to know that God spoke and he ministered his heart to this guy. And, and we were able to then have an incredible conversation. And so I just, I just say that to encourage you to be mindful of the Spirit. When God lays that on your heart, when He puts those yearnings and those ur ur urgent things on your heart, don't be disobedient and hold back, but press into that. Because God's going to speak through you, and what He speaks through you could be the very thing that breaks down all the walls and opens the door for you to share your faith and lead someone to Jesus Christ. And uh, it's just a powerful, powerful thing. And this woman, as we're looking at her in this revelation that she had, after this revelation, she begins to seek the truth. She, began, like, she begins to change everything that she had planned. All of her plans for the day were thrown out with the, with the bathwater, so to speak. In verse 20, she begins to ask Jesus, recognizing that he's a man of God. The relationship changes. And she says, this is, why is that that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it be here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. Verse 21, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, but we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming and is indeed here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him in that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. So at this point, Jesus has had this conversation. He opened up with love. He led her through an, a, a provocative or, or drawing statement. He begins to share his life-changed story. He then ministers a word to her. But then in number five, he gets to what the title of this message is. It is he gets to the pivotal point. Look at verse 26. After she says, the Messiah is coming, he'll explain everything. In verse 26, he says, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been looking for. I am the one. The pivotal point is the place where we have to get for salvation to occur. Everything from where Jesus went, the conversation started, the word of knowledge led to this moment where the truth of who Jesus is would be revealed. And when Jesus said, I am the Messiah, 
The woman knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, believe in me and you will be changed. And at that point, you know what? Her relational baggage didn't matter. Her occupation didn't matter. Her religious affiliation didn't matter. Her ethnicity didn't matter. All that mattered was she was having an encounter with the Lord and realized that the God of the universe was inviting her into a relationship that was going to change her life. When we share Jesus, when we're talking about the Lord, we have to get to that pivotal point, the point where we provide somebody the opportunity to make the decision, am I going to believe or am I not? To pivot away from sin in the world and pivot toward Jesus in repentance and in faith. And we can see this woman's life was dramatically changed. Everything that she'd planned for, all that she knew was going to be completely different. She even begins to do something different with her life that day. In verse 28, it says, The woman left her jar beside the well, ran back to the village, telling everyone. Verse 29, what's it say? She told them, Come and see. Come and see. She left her way of life to go and do something new, and that was to tell everyone, come and see. The very thing a believer and follower of Jesus Christ has at the forefront of their mind. And she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. Without that pivotal point, that opportunity to believe in him as the Messiah. If Jesus had never revealed that he was the Messiah, the one that she was waiting for, the one who could make the difference in her life, it would have never had the effect, not just on her, but the entire city. I mean, what good does feeding the hungry do if we only feed their flesh and not their spirit? What good does clothing the naked do if we only clothe their bodies and not their soul? We have to get to the pivotal point to provide the opportunity for salvation to occur. Jesus engaged her with the love of God. He asked a thought-provoking question. He shares a life-changed testimony. He gives her a revelation and then lands at the pivotal point. And the trajectory of her life was forever changed. This woman goes from going for water at the well to being a powerful missionary that leads her entire city to Jesus. Oh God, that we would have life-changed stories like that here at Vertical Life Church. Verse 31 as we finish the story, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples who weren't there, they come later, were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have the kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. And then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me from, and from finishing his work. And you know the saying, Four months between planting and harvest, but I say, Wake up and look around. The fields are ripe for the harvest. There is nourishment you know nothing about. And it comes from doing the will of the Father. May it be that the reason why many Christians fall away, while we get burnt out and we give up, or we get dissatisfied, is simply because we're not feeding off the nourishment that comes from doing the Father's will. That we're not feeding off the spiritual food that God has for everyone in the harvest. And imagine what might happen to your spiritual life if you caught the fire of the Holy Spirit 
And you allowed him to stoke that fire in your heart, and you began being a bright light into the world. And you took that fire out into the harvest field. Jesus said, the harvest fields are ready, and as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And the question for us today is, will we go? Will we share? And will we get to the pivotal point? Let's bow our heads for prayer. As we go and just do a time of prayer this morning. There are two kinds of people here today. Either in this room or online watching on YouTube. But there are two kinds of people here today. There are those that need to make the decision to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You've heard about God, but you've your relationship with God is more like a relationship with George Washington. You know a lot about him, but you've yet to truly build and cultivate a relationship by saying, Jesus, I am all in with you. Forgive me of my sins. I place my faith and trust in you. I repent of the way I've been, and I'm choosing today to live for you now and forever. And the other kind of person are those who need to repent of being fearful workers in the harvest. You've been a believer. You want to talk about Jesus. You know your sins are forgiven, that you have a relationship with God. But when it comes to sharing your faith, you're the one that clams up and gets scared. You're the one that makes the excuse, I don't know what to say. You're the one that, rather than going into the harvest field, sits back and waits for everyone else to bring in the produce. Whether you're here today and you need to begin a relationship with Jesus or you're here today and you need to be a bolder witness for Christ, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to raise you up as a strong witness. If that's you here today, would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, that's me. I need to be a stronger witness or maybe I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to pray for us this morning before we close. Father, you saw the hands that came up. Lord, I just pray for each person. If there is someone here today that doesn't know you, I pray right now as I pray, they would just repeat this prayer from their heart to you and just say, Father in heaven, forgive me of my sins. I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I believe in his death and resurrection. Forgive me and fill me with your spirit. I choose today to follow you all my days. Thank you, Lord, for loving me, saving me, and being proud to be with me. And Lord, I just pray for the one who raised their hand about being a bolder witness. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would fill them with such fire, God, that they could not stay silent. I pray that boldness would rise up and faith would rise up, God. And rather than fear, that faith would just overcome them. Lord, I pray that you would speak through them. I pray you'd help them to hear and cultivate and know your voice. And I pray, God, for radical encounters with Jesus this week as they take those steps of faith and say, I'm no longer going to stay silent. I'm not going to sit back and I'll let fear hold me back. I'm going to press forward. I'm going to look for opportunity. I'm going to pray for opportunity. And I'm going to press into what you've called me to do. And I pray, God, that we would all choose to be a great light. 
in the name of Jesus.